Well, the God of the Bible is always interesting and never boring, just as He's never safe but always good. And that's perhaps never more clearly seen than in this chapter and in the subsequent chapters that that chronicle the sorry tale of the end of Ahab's reign and also of his life. We say at times we can't win for losing, which is kind of an idiomatic expression, boys and girls. It means no matter how hard I try, uh, I just keep on losing. You have this sense that the ball's bouncing the wrong way in the game, the momentum's moved against you. Well, I kind of I capitalized on that turn of phrase, and we call this chapter, Ahab Can't Win for Sinning. Um, he's been sinning against God and ignoring God again and again and again in recent chapters, most notably, of course, during that climactic battle between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God, Elijah, on Mount Carmel, all which were entire, uh, designed to teach him who the real God was. When Ralph Davis preached in that chapter in seminary back in the chapel service when I was 28, 20 years ago at RTS, he called it, Will the Real God Please Stand Up? And of course, the real God was Yahweh. He didn't just stand up, he threw down fire from heaven and consumed uh, the uh, offering. Now, all of that was lost on Ahab. And the problem is, you see, boys and girls, that you make your choices, and then your choices make you. That's a very important principle in life. When you make a choice, it affects your character. You sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, um, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And Ahab's been choosing to ignore God. And the problem with that, boys and girls, is you cannot choose to ignore God without becoming the kind of person who chooses to ignore God. Right? Just like somebody who, who treats a woman as a casual sexual partner. You can't treat a woman as a casual sexual partner without becoming the kind of person who does that, right? You, you make your choices, and your choices make you. And the thing about making choices to ignore God, that's not something you can just turn off at will. Sometimes young people will think, well, I'll ignore God now for a while, and then later on in life, maybe if I'm in a big car accident, I look down, and my legs have been severed by a jagged piece of metal, and I see my blood spurt, spurt, spurt onto the, the floor of the car. I think, well, then I'll believe in God. The problem is, easier said than done, not just because you, you can't believe in God without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Unless a man is born again, Paul says, or Jesus says, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, but also because if you've made a lifelong habit of ignoring God, don't suddenly think you can turn that around in your final gasp for breath. God here has shown Ahab again and again and again who the real God is, and Ahab can't win for sinning. He's made that habit, and that habit just keeps on continuing. Like the young boy once, he told his dad he wanted to quit his paper route. It was longer than he thought. It was earlier in the morning than he wanted, and he would rather be off the job for the summer. And his dad says, no, you're not stopping. Why? Because if you quit at this, you'll, it'll make it easier to quit at the next thing. And pretty soon, you'll become good at quitting. And I don't want a quitter for a son, right? And that's essentially the lesson that Ahab's daddy never taught him. Now, this chapter is in three scenes, uh, two battle scenes, and then a prophet scene at the end. 
And the first two scenes have the same pattern, and I'll try and highlight that for you as we work our way through. So, scene one and scene two begin with a Syrian threat. Let's read together the Word of God. Ben-Hadad, the king of Assyria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad. Remember that phrase, thus says Ben-Hadad. Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad. I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. And the king of Assyria called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he has sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold. And I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you have demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. So that's the Syrian threat. The next scene, and it happens in the second um, scene, the next phase, and it happens again in the second scene, is a prophetic word comes. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord. Remember, thus says Ben-Hadad. Now, thus says the Lord. Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Uh, then the third part of scene one is, documents Israel's victory. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232, and after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon, when Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they've come out for peace, take them alive, or if they've come out for war, take them alive. He's clearly adult by this stage. So these men went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Assyria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. So it goes from Syrian threat, prophetic word, Israel's victory. The fourth section, and I'll repeat in the next time as well, is good counsel comes. Then the prophet came near the king of Israel and said, Come, strengthen yourself and consider what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. Then the last section of this first scene is a stupid response, and that's going to repeat too in the next time as well. 
And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they." And he listened to their voice and did so, right? So you see the, the, the flow of the scene, the Syrian threat, the prophetic word, Israel's victory, good counsel, stupid response. And the same thing happens again now in scene two with a few alterations. Scene two, first of all, the Syrian threat. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Afik to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. Syrian threat. Then comes the prophetic word. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Then you have Israel's victory. Verse 29. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down of the Assyrians a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. Then you have section four, is a good counsel. And a servant said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. And the final section is, yes, you remember, a stupid response. But this time, it's not the Syrians stupiding, it's Ahab. Verse 32, so they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, does he still live? He's my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into his chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And they have said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And then you have the final scene. And a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle. And behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life should be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. 
Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. How do we unpack this passage? Three points. First of all, the undeserved kindness of God's help. Secondly, the unlimited power of God's hand. And then thirdly, the unavoidable judgment of God's Word. Let's work through these points together um, this evening. First of all, the undeserved kindness of God's help. And you see that here in the first scene, right? They're insurmountable odds. Ben-Hadad comes up with his army. Thirty-two kings, kind of little kinglets who were kind of were probably under his jurisdiction, were with him, horses and chariots. They're like stacks of people, lots of people. Israel hasn't a hope, hasn't in Northern Ireland, we say he doesn't have a pup's chance in hell. And he fights all the way down to the Sumerian capital and is right knocking at Ahab's door. And he offers these unbearable terms. Give me basically your silver, your gold, and your best wives and your children. And Ahab says, no problem, I can live with that. Wouldn't you love to be Ahab's wife and his child, right? And they all go like Herod, um, King Herod uh, the Great, who murdered a bunch of his sons, which led one of, um, I think it was one of the Caesars to say, I'd rather be per Herod's hus than his huus. Hus is pig and huus is son. I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. And there's play of words, hus and huus. He'd rather be his pig because he's a Jew. He's not going to eat the pig, right? So this pig's probably quite safe, uh, notwithstanding Herod's considerable appetite. But his son, different matter altogether. Don't try and get life, expect- life, life insurance terms. You know, you're applying for life insurance terms, and you get to the last question, who's your father? Herod. Okay, I'm sorry. You're not getting any life insurance here because your dad is likely to kill you, and soon. Um, but Ahab is no problem. He gives off his wives and his his children, and his, even his silver and his gold. Well, then um, Ben-Hadad's messengers come back the next day, and they put the knife in a bit deeper and say, okay, the widescreen TV that you like watching the ball games on, we're taking that too. And then the Porsche, that's coming as well. And he's going around taking all of the things. Every time Herod, Ahab winces, they're going, yeah, we'll take that as well. And Ahab's going, no, you can have my sons, you can have my wives, but leave me my stuff, Right? It's a measure of the kind of man Ahab is, not the kind of man you'd want to be or to have as your father. But I digress. So Ahab goes to his advisors, and they say, this is, this is, these are fighting words. Let's get to war, right? And um, Ahab, it's, it's really bluff and bluster. Let not him who puts his armor on boast like him who takes it off. Ahab's a dead man. He knows it. Everybody knows it, but he's got to kind of hold some face, at least together. And then, out of the blue, literally, a prophetic word comes, a bolt of hope from the black sky of despair. And behold, the Hebrew is very emphatic, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I'll give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, 
by the servants of the governors of the districts. And he said, who shall begin the battle? He answered, you, which probably brought a gulp from Ahab nonetheless. But notice the contrast between Ben-Hadad and Ahab. That um, Kocham Amar Yahweh, thus saith Yahweh, or thus says the king, was a, a, a basically a divine pronouncement. Only God spoke like that. So Ben-Hadad comes and says, thus says Ben-Hadad, twice, and then Yahweh comes and says, thus says Yahweh. Dr. Davis, with his usual wit, says, thus says Ben-Hadad, and thus says Yahweh. And we will see whose word carries the day. And it will not be the cocky claim of the strutting Syrian, but it will be Yahweh's word that determines history. Right? Now, the whole point is here, um, Ahab is left in no doubt where the victory came from or why it was given, verse 13, that you, singular, shall know that I am the Lord, which was the very um, point of the far from heaven bit on Mount Carmel. Then you will know, let it be known this day, that you are God and that I am your servant. Remember Elijah's words. So this is like evidence. And unbelievers often ask for evidence, not enough evidence, the famous atheist uh, said. But evidence is never the problem. Our heart's the problem. And you can never give enough evidence to a man who hates God to persuade him to love God. Just the way the human soul works. So Ahab is told where the victory is coming from, why it's given, and also what will happen next. Next year, they're going to come back again. So be vigilant after your victory. Now, here's, this is amazing, right? This is the Ahab of chapters 17, 18, and 19. This is the Ahab who's been slaughtering God's prophets, and God comes to him again with more words. Why? Because God's grace is not just amazing, it's always amazing, but at times it's offensively amazing that God would keep on showing grace to such a wretched sinner like Ahab is encouraging. It shouldn't encourage you to sin, you understand, but it should encourage you to turn from your sin, even if you think you've sinned yourself beyond the pale of God's grace. If God will keep on speaking to Ahab after all the things that blagger did, then you can hope against hope that God will keep speaking to you. But don't push your luck. Remember the, the illustration of the child, as a child, when I would uh, get the elastic band, I'd line up my soldiers, little plastic soldiers, and I would kill them with the plastic band. My dad would say, son, if you know what's good for you, you'll stop that. But often I didn't know it was good for me, and I'd pull the elastic band one too many times or stretch it one bit too far, and it would ping. And the thing is, you never know you've gone too far until you have. It's not like the elastic band doesn't go, warning, warning, <laughs> we're about to break. It's like those subs. You don't get the kind of like, warning, warning, implosion is imminent. You might get a crackling sound, but then it really is too late, right? So you're pulling this thing, and suddenly pop, and then you get a shock in your eye. And so God is gracious, sometimes obnoxiously so and offensively so, but He is remarkably gracious to wretches like Ahab to show you that His patience suffers long, but His patience does not suffer forever, right? Remember um, um, wasn't it Thomas Watson? He has all the best Puritan quotes, but God's God's love has a heaven and His wrath a hell to display themselves for all eternity, but His patience has but a short 
lived earth. And so the message this evening is, don't sport with God's patience. Today, children, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. It might be for the last time. So if you hear God's Word today, and you are, you're alive. Don't harden your hearts. Soften. Come, Lord, soften my heart. Turn my heart towards you, O God, and deal with my natural wickedness. So the first lesson is, the undeserved kindness of God's help. The second lesson sight is the unlimited power of God's hand. As far as the Syrians are concerned, they lost the battle for two problems. They had bad theology, and they had bad leadership. Bad theology. We ceded the home turf to Yahweh. We didn't realize, right? He's a god of the mountains. Our gods are the gods of the lowlands. We need to level the playing field, literally, and then we'll win. Bad theology. And then also bad leadership, right? You've got to get rid of all the kings, all of the Ruperts, right? In America, I think you call the officers cake-eaters. In, in Britain, they call them Ruperts, because Rupert is kind of the name that the posh people give their sons. Rupert, Rupert, come here and get some champagne, Rupert and caviar, right? And they have no idea how to fight a battle. And so the, the, the squaddies call them Ruperts, the, the Ruperts who lead them, often incompetently, Right? And that's the problem. Do this, Ahab says. Remove the kings, these, these uh, entitled idiots, and put commanders, men who know what they're doing, men who know a thing or two because they've seen a thing or two, put the commanders in their places. So the problem is bad leadership, and the other problem is bad theology, right? Um, your gods, our gods, their gods, the Yahweh is the God of the mountains, our gods, the God of the lowlands. Don't fight in the mountains, fight on the lowlands. Now, the point of all that is theology matters, even when it's bad, right? Um, fool around and find out. And Benadad has been fooling around quite a lot, and he's going to find out lots of interesting lessons. But if you've got bad theology, it will bite you, right? Their, their idea of God is completely wrong. It's like the Israelites in, in um, Psalm 50. Um, you remember whenever God is, is uh, dividing His people, Israel, into those who are faithful and those who are faithless. And the faithful, He says, in Psalm 50, or sorry, Psalm 50, turn there quickly with me a second. He says, basically, um, I don't, your big problem is I don't need your worship. You think I do. You think your worship makes me feel better by, by myself. It doesn't. I'm not the one who needs you. You need me, right? Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. But then God turns his attention to the wicked among God's people, and he says he, he challenges them. Remember, wickedness in the Hebrew carries the idea of trying to find life where life can't be found, thinking that you can find life by departing from God. And, um, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? These are people who love claiming covenant theology as their birthright. We're going to heaven. God's our God, right? We've been circumcised or baptized. And God says, the problem is you've got a bad attitude, for you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you, just like Ahab. And also, you've got bad company. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep a company with adulterers. Then you've got a bad mouth. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother and slander your own mother's son, right? These things you have done, and I kept silent. 
And the fourth problem is you've got bad theology. You thought that I was one just like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you, right? Bad theology will bite you. Ideas have consequences, and you fool around with bad theology, and it, and you'll find out, right? Theology matters when it's bad, and here's the kicker. Theology also ought to matter when it's good. God has been teaching Ahab good theology. For chapter after chapter after chapter, He's given Ahab one lesson after another. You will know that I am the Lord. That's true theology. And when you know that in your head, it should trickle down in here to your heart, and it should make some appreciable difference to your life. Did it? Well, the very last verse of the chapter will tell you. It didn't. Bad theology matters for the Syrians, and good theology ought to matter for God's people, but it didn't, and that was a problem. Too much has been given, much will, much will be expected. And yet again, God sends this remarkable victory, and they slaughter um, 127,000 of the Syrians, which was quite remarkable. But Benhadad is spared. One final test. So you have the un... Oh, went too far. The undeserved kindness of God's help and the unlimited power of God's hand, and then lastly, the unavoidable judgment of God's Word. This conclusion, I will grant you, does seem a little weird, but the lesson is hard to miss. Um, another prophet comes. God's Word is really hard to escape for Ahab. A certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me, please. He even said, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And not surprisingly, as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Ergo, it is never safe to ignore the Word of God. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. Now, we don't know whether the first man was privy to the conversation, or the second man was privy to the conversation of the first. If he had been, he evidently got the message, and he struck the man at least once and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king, by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. He's gone. Um, um, I was talking to a friend this week at the conference, and he had a, a uh, Tesla X, and they offered him to give me a, a ride, and I didn't, we, we didn't have time to go. But apparently there's an insanity mode in this Tesla. You press it, and the, the, the acceleration like sucks the eyes into the back of your head, and you're, it's painful to your face. I didn't get to experience that, but it sounds interesting. Well, the prophet here is going, you might say, Nathan mode. He's coming in this kind of object lesson. And Nathan went to David, you remember, with the, with the sheep story. And this man comes to Ahab with a sentry story. He disguised himself. Now, as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought it 
uh, brought a man to me and said, guard this man if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver, which is like 34 kilograms of silver, 75 pounds, which is a lot of money. And as the servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided it. Essentially, um, Ahab says, you had one job to do, just one job, guard the man. But you got distracted. I mean, I'd like to have mercy upon you, but I mean, justice matters. You're dead. We have to have some standards in this place after all. It's amazing how, how clear Ahab's eye was when he saw the sins of other people. The problem was he couldn't see his own sin. And that is a rather common problem in the pulpits of this land, and I would say in the pulpit of this church and in the pews also. We tend to be much sharper-eyed in seeing the inconsistencies of other men's lives than we are in seeing the inconsistencies in our lives. Light is often not the problem. The will is the problem. The heart is the problem. With Ahab, and also with me, and I rather suspect with you as well. So, the man takes his, his disguise off and said, and the king recognized him. He's a prophet. Oh, no. You can almost see Ahab going, I know this is going to end very badly. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. The king was similarly distracted. He had one job to do, to wipe out all of God's enemies. But he got distracted. He got distracted with, you know, this could be a good business proposition. I get back all the land he took from me, and I get to put bazaars in um, Damascus, which is a profitable moolah, right? And he got distracted, just like the century in the story. And it paid for it, and he paid for it with his life. Now, you may think that's not fair, right? God didn't explicitly tell Ahab to kill Ben-Hadad. And that's true, granted to you. But he could have asked. I couldn't have been more than about six or seven years of age. I was up the road playing at a friend's house, and we were playing in the, in the, in the driveway, and his sister, who's probably three years of age, was coming hurtling down the driveway on a tricycle, and her wee feetsies couldn't stay on the, on the, the pedals, and she's like, oh, and she turned too hard to the left, and the trike went over, and she went splat on her face on the ground. It looked really sore. There was blood everywhere, and I went like this. Through the kitchen window, I'll grant you, it might have looked as if I was laughing. I wasn't. You can be the judge. But her dad saw, and he assumed I was laughing. He came running out of the house on the way to pick up his daughter. He clubbed me with the back of his fist across my face and knocked me to the ground. I got up. I was not expecting that. And I went home. And 
it would all have gone well had my dad not seen that I had this huge swelling around my eye, and Dad said, what happened? I told Dad the story. Well, Dad, I've never seen my dad more angry. Dad got in the car, raced up the road, jumped out of the road, and was met by this man who had since heard the story. And he goes, I'm really sorry. He said, I didn't know. I thought your son was laughing. And Dad said, fair enough, but you could have asked. He didn't. So, granted, God didn't specifically tell Ahab um, to kill Ben-Hadad. But when God had been so liberal with His prophetic word in the previous chapter, Ahab could have asked. I dare say God would have told him. And he could have read about um, Saul, another pagan king, and so forth and so on. But he didn't. He didn't ask. He didn't think. Because I suspect he didn't want to. And it's tragic, really. Ahab begins by sparing the enemy of God and ends up destroying the people of God. Verse 42, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And if you think that's not fair. Israel were also guilty. In verse 28, right, um, and a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but is not the God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, that you all shall know that I am the Lord. Earlier in the chapter when God says that you may know that I am the Lord, it's you singular. The second object lesson was for Israel, that you all may know Ahab's example led his people into sin, and he paid for it with his life, but also the life of his people. It's, it's all very sobering, isn't it? Ideas of consequences and bad ideas have victims, as Jim likes to tell us. And they have found that out as did Israel. How are you responding to God's grace this evening? <clears throat> the grace of God has appeared, epiphany, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. It's teaching us to say no to ungodly choices and to say yes to sensible, righteous, godly lives, sensible, doing what you know is right, even in those moments when you want what's wrong. And this is a very convicting thought to leave you with in my last message before the vacation. I apologize. But, you know, um, this should, we, often, we often like to remind ourselves of the verse, when sin abounds, grace does much more abound especially when we have the nasty habit of committing the same sin again and again and again, the same willful, rebellious, defiant, high-handed sin against God. And the Bible does say, within a bound, grace is much more abound. More but it also says, remember Lot's wife. And that's in the New Testament, not just the Old. Jesus said that, you remember. And God's grace is a wonderful thing, and God's patience is a wonderful thing, but don't fool around with it. You sin, He forgives. You sin, He forgives. 
Um, and I, I'm, all sin is sin. There are no small things against a great God, you understand. But we can get used to that pattern, almost like, um, uh, and betray the principle that John Owen teaches in his sermons in Psalm 130, he that never had great thoughts of sin never once had a great thought of God. But moving from the Old Testament to the New, um, things don't get less serious when it comes to fooling around and finding out. They get more serious. Remember Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately, and he's speaking here about the deliberate sin of apostasy, turning away from the church, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But don't stress yourself out. That was then. This is now. This is the New Testament. God's kind of taking a chill pill. No. How much worse punishment do you think will, he, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and was, has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? And so, all of that, I'm not trying to frighten you into repentance, but I am trying to sober you. It's a serious business to turn away from Christ and to pursue our sins. And when we do, we should remember Ahab. We make our choices, and our choices make us. And the more we make a choice, it affects our character. You become what you repeatedly choose to do. And Jesus is here saying, I've got a better way to teach you. Let me teach you the character of faith, trusting in me, experiencing my love, for you, stirring up your love for me back again in an echo of my heart, teaching you to repent. Come to the Good Shepherd. He will restore your soul. He will guide you in the pathways of righteousness for His namesake. And the best way to, to do that is to turn from sin to Jesus, not to turn from Jesus and walk after our sins. And it's a it's a wonderful thing, this grace is, but it's, it's a sober thing. Let me read you a story that Dr. Davis quoted that was beautiful. John Crumby was a merchant in Haddington, where John Brown ministered in Scotland, probably in the 1770s. He had gunpowder stashed in a cellar beneath his shop. One summer evening, as he labored over his ledger by the shop window, an apprentice went down to the cellar with a lighted candle. A spark from the spluttering flame fell on an exposed barrel. Then, an immediate horrific explosion. The lad was killed instantly. Crumby was shot into the air and carried up the street about 30 yards and dumped among debris without a scratch. An experience hard to forget. And he didn't. Every year for the rest of his life, Crumby scrupulously observed its anniversary 
shutting himself within his bedchamber the whole day long, pouring out his thanksgivings to God for his preservation. He was impressed. Grace left its mark. Crumby understood the claim of grace. But Ahab, from all we can tell, a different process. Grace undeserved, grace unrequested, and grace unacknowledged. Let's not um, sport with the grace of God, um, lest we become like those that Paul warned about. Did you not know that the goodness of God is designed to lead you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Let grace teach you a better lesson, to bind your wandering heart like a fetter to Jesus, to stay close to Him, to cling to Him, and not to sport with our sins and not to sport with our Savior. His blood, with an enormous price, paid not to leave you in your sins, but to set you free from them. And we should look to Jesus and call upon Him, lest we become New Testament Ahabs. That would be a terrible prospect. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You, O God, for Your mercy. It's amazing, Father, this wicked, profligate, apostate Ahab, and You keep speaking to him again and again and again, and we see him tonight cross the line of no return. And, O oh God, you know that I have sported with your grace in my life, and I'm sure there's not a pew in this building that has not the same testimony. We sport with your grace. We ignore your word. Lord, today, tonight, if we hear your word, let us not harden your hearts, harden our hearts, but let us come. And please soften our heart. Leave us not vexed and disturbed like Ahab, but leave us broken and repentant, sinners clinging to Jesus, the only hope in life and in death. For His name's sake we pray. Amen.